welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Language and Culture In a study of the impact of residential schools, the Assembly of First Nations noted in 1994 that language is necessary to define and maintain a worldview. For this reason, some First Nations elders to this day will say that knowing or learning the native language is basic to any deep understanding of a First Nation way of life, to being a First Nation person. For them, a First Nation world is quite simply not possible without its own language. For them, the impact of residential schools silencing their language is equivalent to a residential school silencing the world. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples similarly noted the connection between Aboriginal language and what it is called a distinctive worldview rooted in the stories of ancestors and the environment. The Royal Commission added that Aboriginal languages are a tangible emblem of group identity that can provide the individual a sense of security and continuity with the past. Maintenance of the language and group identity has both a social, emotional, and spiritual purpose. Residential schools were a systematic, government-sponsored attempt to destroy Aboriginal cultures and languages and to assimilate Aboriginal peoples so that they no longer existed as distinct peoples. English, and to a far lesser degree, French, were the only languages permitted to be used in most schools. Students were punished, often severely, for speaking their own languages. Michael Sillett, a former student at the Northwest River Residential School in Newfoundland and Labrador, told the commission, "'Children at the dorm were not allowed to speak their mother tongue.' I remember several times when other children were slapped or had their mouths washed out for speaking their mother tongue, whether it was a Nuuktitut or Inu Amun. Residents were admonished for just being native. As late as the 1970s, students at schools in northwestern Ontario were not allowed to speak their language if they were in the presence of a staff member who could not understand that language. Conrad Burns, whose father attended the Prince Albert School, named this policy for what it was. It was a cultural genocide. People were beaten for their language. People were beaten because they followed their own ways. Rights to culture and language and the need for remedies for their loss have long been recognized in international law. They are specifically acknowledged in the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which has recognized the critical state of Aboriginal languages. In Article 8.1 of the Declaration, recognizes that Indigenous peoples and individuals have the right to not be subjected to forced assimilation or destruction of their culture. Article 8.2 provides that states shall provide effective mechanisms for prevention of and redress for any form of forced assimilation or integration. The Declaration also includes specific recognition of the right to revitalize and transmit Aboriginal languages in Article 13.1, which recognizes that Indigenous peoples have the right to revitalize, use, develop, and transmit to future generations their histories, languages, oral traditions, philosophies, writing systems, and literatures, and to designate and retain their own names for communities, places, and persons. Article 14 provides for educational language rights of the type that Canadians already know and experience with respect to Anglophone and Francophone minorities. 
Article 14.1 provides similarly that indigenous peoples have the right to establish and control their educational systems and institutions providing education in their own languages in a manner appropriate to their cultural methods of teaching and learning. And Article 14.3 provides, States shall, in conjunction with indigenous peoples, take effective measures in order for indigenous individuals, particularly children, including those living outside their communities, to have access, when possible, to an education in their own culture and provided in their own language. Article 16 provides that indigenous peoples have the right to establish their own media in their own languages and to have access to all forms of non-indigenous media without discrimination, and that states shall take effective measures to ensure that state-owned media duly reflect indigenous cultural diversity. The attempt to assimilate students by denying them access to and respect for their Aboriginal language and culture often meant that the students became estranged from their families and communities. Agnes Mills, a former student at All Saints Residential School in Saskatchewan, told the commission her story. And one of the things that residential school did for me, I really regret, is that it made me ashamed of who I was, and I wanted to be white so bad. And the worst thing I ever did was I was ashamed of my mother, that honorable woman, because she couldn't speak English. She never went to school, and they told us that. We used to go home to her on Saturdays, and they told us that we couldn't talk Gwich'in to her, and she couldn't like, couldn't communicate, and my sister was the one that had the nerve to tell her, we can't talk Lushu to you, they told us not to. Mary Kurshen, formerly a student at the residential schools of Fort Alexander in Manitoba and Lee Brett in Saskatchewan, had a similar interaction with her family. And I looked at my dad, and I looked at my mom, and I looked at my dad again. You know what? I hated them. I just absolutely hated my own parents. Not because I thought they abandoned me. I hated their brown faces. I hated them because they were Indians. So I looked at my dad and I challenged him and I said, from now on, we speak only English in this house, I said to my dad. And you know, when we in a traditional home where I was raised, the first thing that we were always taught was to respect your elders and never to, you know, challenge them. And here I was, 11 years old, and I challenged. My dad looked at me and I thought he was going to cry. And in fact, his eyes filled up with tears. He turned to my mom and he says, then I guess we'll never speak to this little girl again. I don't know her. Some survivors refused to teach their own children their Aboriginal languages and cultures because of the negative stigma that had come to be associated with them during their school years. This has contributed significantly to the fragile state of Aboriginal languages in Canada today. Many of the almost 90 surviving Aboriginal languages in Canada are under serious threat of extinction. In the 2011 census, 14.5% of the Aboriginal population reported that their first language learned was an Aboriginal language. In the previous 2006 census, 18% of those who identified as Aboriginal had reported an Aboriginal language as their first language learned, and a decade earlier, in the 1996 census, the figure was 26%. This indicates nearly a 50% drop in the 15 years since the last residential schools closed. There are, however, variations among Aboriginal peoples. 63.7% of Inuit speak their Indigenous language, compared with 22.4% of First Nations people and only 2.5% of Métis people. Some languages are close to extinction because they only have a few remaining speakers of the great-grandparent generation. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, lists 36% of Canada's Aboriginal languages as being critically endangered, in the sense that they are only used by great-grandparent generations. 
18% are severely endangered in the sense that they are only used by the great-grandparent and grandparent generations, and 16% are definitely endangered in the sense that they are used by the parental and the two previous generations. The remaining languages are all vulnerable. If the preservation of Aboriginal languages does not become a priority, both for governments and for Aboriginal communities, then what the residential schools fail to accomplish will come through about a process of systematic neglect. Language rights. In interpreting Aboriginal and treaty rights under Section 35.1 of the Constitution Act 1982, the Supreme Court of Canada has stressed the relation of those rights to the preservation of distinct Aboriginal cultures. The Commission concurs. The preservation of Aboriginal languages is essential and must be recognized as a right. Call to action number 13. We call upon the federal government to acknowledge that Aboriginal rights include Aboriginal language rights. Government programs. At a time when government funding is most needed to protect Aboriginal languages and culture, Canada has not upheld commitments it previously made to fund such programs. In 2002, the federal government promised $160 million for the creation of a Center for Aboriginal Languages and Culture and a National Language Strategy. But in 2006, the government retreated from that commitment, pledging instead to spend $5 million per year in permanent funding for the Aboriginal Languages Initiative, ALI, which had been started in 1998. The ALI is a program of government-administered heritage subsidies. It is not based on the notion of respectful nation-to-nation -nation relations between Canada and Aboriginal peoples. Neither does it provide Aboriginal people with the opportunity to make decisions for themselves about how to allocate scarce resources and how to administer programs. Many who appeared before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada were skeptical about the government's commitment to preserve Aboriginal languages. As Michael Soleil told us, I cannot see the federal government putting out the money that's necessary for full restitution, you know. I can't bring back my language. I lost that. I lost my culture. Other than ALI, the only significant programs for language preservation are the Canada Territorial Language Accords, $4.1 million annual budget, which support territorial government-directed Aboriginal language services, supports, and community projects in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories. In Yukon, language revitalization and preservation projects are supported through transfers agreements with 10 of the 11 self-governing Yukon First Nations. The combined total annual federal budget for these Aboriginal languages programs is $9.1 million. By way of comparison, the official languages program for English and French is projected to receive funding as follows. For the years 2012 and 2013, $353.3 million. For the years 2013 to 2014, $348.2 million. For the years 2014 to 2015, $348.2 million. The resources committed to Aboriginal language programs are far fewer than what is committed to French in areas where French speakers are in the minority. For example, the federal government provides support to the small minority of Francophones in Nunavut in the amount of approximately $4,000 per individual annually. In contrast, funding support Inuit languages initiatives is estimated at $44 per Inuk per year. The Commission believes that a multi-pronged approach to Aboriginal language preservation, if implemented, honorably resourced, and sustained, might prevent further increase in the litigation of Aboriginal language rights and the increased international criticism of Canada's policy toward Aboriginal language rights. This approach will require full good-faith consultation, which recognizes that although Aboriginal communities have the necessary knowledge, particularly among their elders, to preserve their own languages, additional support is needed. 
The outcome of the consultation should be legislation and policies that affirm the importance of Canada's Indigenous languages and allocate adequate funding to ensure their preservation. Calls to action number 14. We call upon the federal government to enact an Aboriginal Languages Act that incorporates the following principles. Aboriginal languages are a fundamental and valued element of Canadian culture and society, and there is an urgency to preserve them. Aboriginal language rights are reinforced by the treaties. The federal government has a responsibility to provide sufficient funds for Aboriginal language revitalization and preservation. The preservation, revitalization, and strengthening of Aboriginal languages and cultures are best managed by Aboriginal people and communities. Funding for Aboriginal language initiatives must reflect the diversity of Aboriginal languages. Number 15. We call upon the federal government to appoint, in consultation with the Aboriginal groups, an Aboriginal languages commissioner. The commissioner should help promote Aboriginal languages and report on the adequacy of federal funding of Aboriginal languages initiatives. In addition to promoting the use of Aboriginal languages, an Aboriginal languages commissioner would also educate non-Aboriginal Canadians about the richness and value of Aboriginal languages and how strengthening those languages can enhance Canada's international reputation. Aboriginal people recognize how important it is for their children to speak and understand an Aboriginal language. Sabrina Williams, an intergenerational survivor from British Columbia, expressed that need. I didn't realize until taking this language class how much we have lost. All the things that are attached to language, its family connections, its oral history, its tradition, its ways of being, its ways of knowing, its medicine, its song, its dance, its memory, its everything, including the land. And unless we inspire our kids to love our culture, to love our language, our languages are continually going to be eroded over time. So that is daunting, yeah. So to me, that's part of what reconciliation looks like. Language instruction may require innovative approaches, including the use of elders and others as teachers and the use of immersion programs. Education institutions must be flexible and responsive in their attempts to encourage the teaching of Aboriginal languages. They should be prepared to draw on the available resources within Aboriginal communities to facilitate the teaching and transmission of Aboriginal languages. More formal training opportunities are also required. Call to action number 16. We call upon post-secondary institutions to create university and college degree and diploma programs in Aboriginal languages. Reclaiming Names As a result of the residential school experience, many Aboriginal people lost their language and lost touch with their culture. Many also suffered a loss of a different sort. It was common for residential school officials to give students new names. At the Aklavik Anglican School in the Northwest Territories, a young Inuit girl named Masak became Alice. She would not hear her old name until she returned home. At the Coppell School in Saskatchewan, Ochan Kugahe, Pathmaker, became Daniel Kennedy, named for the Biblical Daniel, and Adelard Standing Buffalo was named for Adelard Langevin, the Archbishop of St. Boniface. Survivors and their families who have sought to reclaim the names that were taken from them in residential schools have found the process to be both expensive and time-consuming. We believe that measures should be put in place to reduce the burden placed on those who seek to reclaim the significant portion of their heritage. Call to action number 17. We call upon all levels of government to enable residential school survivors and their families to reclaim names changed by the residential school system by waiving administrative costs for a period of five years for the name change process and the revision of official identity documents, such as birth certificates, passports, driver's licenses, health cards, status cards, and social insurance numbers. Health. 
Residential schools endangered the health and well-being of the children who attended them. Many students succumbed to infectious disease, particular tuberculosis. Sexual and physical abuse, as well as separation from families and communities, caused lasting trauma for many others. The effects of this trauma were often passed on to the children of the residential school survivors, and sometimes to their grandchildren. Residential schools also posed a threat to the mental health of students through the pervasive assumptions and assertions they made about the inferiority of Aboriginal peoples, cultures, and languages. This disregard for Aboriginal health and well-being was consistent with the long-established patterns of colonialism, the introduction of new diseases, the disruption of traditional food sources, and the concentration of people on unproductive land and the housing of them in cramped, unsanitary dwellings. The schools undermined Aboriginal health by failing to feed and clothe the children properly and housing them in poorly constructed and dangerous buildings. The schools did not properly screen out sick and infectious children and often lacked adequate treatment facilities. As Ruby Firth, a former student at the Stringer Hall in the Northwest Territories, told the commission, those conditions had a lasting effect. I've got chronic bronchitis today. Every winter, I get pneumonia like two or three times, and I'm on two puffers, because when I was in Stringer Hall Residential School, they used to put us in these skinny little red coats that weren't even warm enough for winter, and we used to have to walk across the street to go to school. Both my lungs are 50% scarred from having pneumonia seven times in residential school. That's always going to be there. It's never going to go away. There were also lasting psychological and emotional impacts. Sonia Watunibird described the damage the residential school caused her. I lost my braids, my beautiful hair was cut, and I felt like my identity was so confused. I didn't know who I was. What's even worse is that they started to sexually take advantage of me and abuse me. Not one, not two, but many, many people for a very long time until I was 16. I started to really deteriorate. I became very sick and anorexic and really started to go downhill. At one point, I only weighed 66 pounds, and that was it. I had no desire to live. The doctor said, you have a month to live, go home. He said to my family, Take her home. She's going to die. I would say to mom and dad, and they never understood why I was crying. The school always said, Sonia is a fantastic student. She's doing so well. But inside, it was torment. I held everything in and didn't tell anybody for 20 years. Catherine Copanache, a former student at the St. Mary's Residential School in Ontario, told the commission about her struggles. The residential school students suffered physical, sexual, spiritual, and most of all, emotional abuse. And my dad used to say to me, emotional abuse is more damaging than physical abuse. Your physical hurts heal. That's what he used to say. When I got older, I had thoughts of suicide, inflicting pain on myself, which I did. I used to slash my arms, pierce my arms, and my body. And I destroyed myself with alcohol, which the government introduced, of course. The children in residential schools were powerless to take healing measures. They were denied access to traditional foods and to families, traditional healers, and communities who could have helped them, according to the Aboriginal ways, to deal with the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual elements of ill health. Because of the isolated location of many of the schools, students were also denied access to Western doctors and nurses. This double denial of health care, based in government policy, continues to this day, due to the relative isolation of many Aboriginal communities, many of which have no road access and limited access to local health resources. Healthcare is a right enshrined in international and constitutional law, as well as in treaties. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples recognizes that Indigenous peoples have the right to physical and mental integrity, as well as the right to equal enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. And taking measures to achieve these goals, states are obligated to pay particular attention to the rights and special needs of elders, women, youth, children, and persons with disabilities. 
Indigenous peoples have the right to be actively involved in developing, determining, and administering health programs that affect them. Indigenous peoples also have the right to traditional medicines and to maintain their traditional health practices. The numbered treaties also established additional legal obligations concerning Aboriginal health and wellness. The right to medical care was recognized in Treaties 6, 7, 8, 10, and 11. Treaty 6 explicitly included provision of a medicine chest and relief from pestilence. However, the right to health is not limited to these treaties. The treaty negotiations included many references to the protection of and non-interference with traditional ways of life. Call to action number 18. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to acknowledge that the current state of Aboriginal health in Canada is a direct result of previous Canadian government policies, including residential schools, and to recognize and implement the health care rights of Aboriginal people as identified in international law and constitutional law under the treaties. The health cap. There are troubling gaps in health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. For example, the infant mortality rates for First Nations and Inuit children range from 1.7 to over four times the non-Aboriginal rate. From 2004 to 2008, the age-specific mortality rate at ages 1 to 19 in the Inuit homelands was 188 deaths per 100,000 person years at risk, compared with only 35.3 deaths per 100,000 in the rest of Canada. First Nations people aged 45 and older have nearly twice the rate of diabetes as the non-Aboriginal population. First Nations people were six times more likely than the general population to suffer alcohol-related deaths and more than three times more likely to suffer drug-induced deaths. The overall suicide rate amongst First Nation communities is about twice that of the total Canadian population. For Inuit, the rate is still higher, six to 11 times the rate for the general population. Aboriginal youth between the ages of 10 and 29 who are living on reserves are five to six times more likely to die by suicide than non-Aboriginal youth. Measuring progress. Obtaining precise information on the state of health of Aboriginal people in Canada is difficult. The most complete information about comparative health outcomes is out of date, much of it coming from the 1990s. Unlike in other countries, the Canadian government has not provided a comprehensive list of well-being indicators comparing Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal populations. The lack of accessible data on comparable health indicators means that these issues receive less public, media, and political attention. In Australia, the government has set a timeline for closing the gap in health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal citizens. The Australian Prime Minister reports annually on the progress being made to close the gaps in targets related to life expectancy and mortality rates for Indigenous children. Canada must do likewise. Call to action number 19. We call upon the federal government, in consultation with Aboriginal peoples, to establish measurable goals to identify and close the gaps in health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities, and to publish annual progress reports and assess long-term trends. Such efforts would focus on indicators such as infant mortality, maternal health, suicide, mental health, addictions, life expectancy, birth rates, infant and child health issues, chronic diseases, illness and injury incidents, and the availability of appropriate health services. In 2003, the First Minister's Accord on Healthcare Renewal recognized the obvious, that Aboriginal peoples face serious health challenges. The Accord committed to making the reduction of the gap in health status between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples a national priority. More than a decade later, that gap remains. In fact, 
the federal government has moved backwards on issues of Aboriginal health since the signing of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement and Canada's apology to survivors. It has terminated funding to a number of Aboriginal health organizations, including the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and the National Aboriginal Health Organization. These organizations were committed to models of research and treatment in which Aboriginal communities have ownership, control, access, and possession. Their loss significantly limits the development of accurate information about health issues and solutions under Aboriginal control. Health Canada has also cut funding for a number of Aboriginal primary health programs, including programs that address diabetes, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, youth suicide, infectious diseases, and maternal and child health. These cuts have had a serious impact on Aboriginal communities. Trudy King, a former student at Grandin College Residential School, is from Fort Resolution in the Northwest Territories. When I lost my son here in 2003, I needed counseling for me and my children. I couldn't get help here anywhere. There was a health and social services coordinator here that I begged and begged to help us, and she said, there's no monies. We don't have monies to get counseling for you and your kids. I couldn't go anywhere. Nobody would help us, and it was in 2003. There has to be help out there for people that want and are crying for help. I couldn't get it. My kids couldn't get it. A former student at Guy Hill Residential School in Manitoba, MRE Linklater, also emphasized the need for more community-based services when she spoke with the commission. More programs should be put on for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren because they need to understand why their parents are the way that they are, why so many of our people are so into alcohol and drug addiction. And for myself, I know why. It's to survive or not go back there. Our children need more education, support, more programs, and not to cut the programs that they have in place. Health reforms often involve Aboriginal people in complex jurisdictional disputes and tripartite negotiations with both the federal and provincial or territorial governments. Such jurisdictional disputes have particularly affected Métis, non-status, and urban Aboriginal people, as the federal government insists that providing services to these groups is a provincial and territorial responsibility. Call to action number 20. In order to address the jurisdictional disputes concerning Aboriginal people who do not reside on reserves, we call upon the federal government to recognize, respect, and address the distinct health needs of the Métis, Inuit, and off-reserve Aboriginal peoples. Aboriginal Healing Practices Aboriginal health practices and beliefs, like Aboriginal people themselves, are diverse. However, a holistic approach to health is common to many Aboriginal cultures and has also been increasingly validated by Western medicine. A belief shared among many Inuit, Métis, and First Nation people is that a sacred connection exists among people, the earth, and everything above it, upon it, and within it. For purposes of healing, this means activities such as on-the-land or bush healing camps, where participants can experience the healing power of the natural world. Traditional practices can also include sweat lodges, cedar baths, smudging, the lighting of the kilik, a stone lamp used by the Inuit for ceremonial purposes, and other spiritual ceremonies. Best practices for Aboriginal wellness involve a range of services from mainstream healthcare to traditional practices and medicines, all under community leadership and control. Such an integrated approach has the power to improve the lives of all community members. Calls to action number 21. We call upon the federal government to provide sustainable funding for existing and new Aboriginal healing centers to address the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual harms caused by residential schools, and to ensure that the funding of healing centers in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories is a priority. Number 22. 
We call upon those who can affect change within the Canadian healthcare system to recognize the value of Aboriginal healing practices and use them in the treatment of Aboriginal patients in collaboration with Aboriginal healers and elders where requested by Aboriginal patients. Overcoming the health legacy of the residential schools will require a long-term investment in Aboriginal communities so that communities can revive their capacity to heal themselves. One key investment will be the training of more Aboriginal health and social service professionals. The work that Health Canada's Community Cultural and Traditional Knowledge Healing Team members did in support of this commission and other settlement agreement processes is but one example of the invaluable service these professionals can provide. Call to action number 23. We call upon all levels of government to increase the number of Aboriginal professionals working in the healthcare field, ensure the retention of Aboriginal healthcare providers in Aboriginal communities, provide cultural competency training for all healthcare professionals. Closing the gap in health outcomes will come about only as part of a comprehensive strategy of change. To be more effective in improving health outcomes, non-Aboriginal medical practitioners must develop a better understanding of the health issues facing Canada's Aboriginal peoples and of the legacy of residential schools. Call to action number 24. We call upon medical and nursing schools in Canada to require all students to take a course dealing with Aboriginal health issues, including the history and legacy of residential schools, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, treaties and Aboriginal rights, and Indigenous teachings and practices. This will require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com.